Now we have a special treat for you. The format of the programme is I invite a guest in after 12 for half an hour after which we love sport to find out a hidden side and maybe interesting aspects of a, a person who's a well-known figure. Last week we had Michael O'Leary. This week it's a great pleasure to uh, see a guy. You see him on the Sunday game. He peers over those glasses. He interrupts Colin O'Rourke and won't let him get a word in edgeways. And he slaughters poor Pat Spillane. It is a great pleasure to welcome you, Joe. I want to find out the person behind the pundit. Uh, you're back on the Sunday game tonight. It's a bit d- disconcerting here. You know, if, if you haven't... And it uh, hasn't started yet. Yeah. People <laughs> haven't seen Ivan before. He's about six foot three or four. And he's he's standing up. And, I'm, I, and I'm a heavyweight. <laughs> he's like a man getting ready for a song recital. <laughs> This is absolutely Look, intimidating Joe Brawley yeah, is something yeah. uh, that that I, I, I couldn't claim to. First of all, one of the reasons we're speaking to you this week is uh, you are the founder of Opt for Life campaign. It's about organ donation. Just tell us the Joe Brawley, Shane Finnegan story. Uh, well, I mean, unless unless you're living in a cave, you, you know, you're you're almost certain to know it. I um, was looking around for something to do, something, you know, a bit more profound. And uh, this fella who was in the same club as I was, but who I didn't know, I was told by another fella that he needed a kidney, that he was suffering from kidney failure and was very ill. So I uh, tapped him on the shoulder and said... Um, and he said, yeah. I said, I'll give you a kidney. And, uh, and so you I, did? Yeah, so about um, three days later, he rang me and he said, look, is that, were you serious about that? So we met in a wee cafe and I said, absolutely. And, um, I mean, I was very excited about it. You know, wild horses couldn't have deterred me. And is there and, an issue uh, about a match and all that kind of thing? That uh, Well, there were some issues, but because it was a complex situation because of um, he had he had been on dialysis for a long time and had uh, rejection problems before so we had to go to Guy's Hospital in London to do this sort of groundbreaking operation but they were very confident that it would work and I didn't tell anybody so for about say for about nine months I was sneaking back and forwards to London you know I mean didn't tell anybody and uh uh, but I, I was just very, very excited, to be honest. You know, people, it, it, people say, oh, it was a great sacrifice and a great altruistic thing, and you can paint it that way if you like, but I was very, very excited. And at one stage, there was a suggestion that it might not happen, and I remember feeling devastated, thinking, Jesus. So, you know, and then sort of when it came out, then I was sort of painted as a national saint. But in truth, I was... And just actually, okay. you know, I would have got waves of excitement okay. about when I was thinking about this upcoming operation and all of that. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. You know, save a man's life. Life affirming. Know. Yeah, save a man's life. You know, he'll sort Okay, of just on the fact that it happened in 2012, did it? Um, and it didn't I, work. It worked for a while and then it failed, you know, so the, as, it, as happens with these things, you know, they, they took out this pristine kidney and put it in the bin. God. Now, and I saw photographs of yourself and you looked worse than Shane 
Right. Well, that's what happens, you know, for the, the donor, because your kidney's very well protected. You'll notice, for example, if you ever see boxers, they're always looking for the kidney, you know, because if you can hit someone in the kidney, it's the end of the fight. They go down on one knee and that's it. And um, kidney's heavily protected because it's your poison filter, you know, and um, it's sort of wedged in behind your, just below your, just below your clavicle there and uh, so it's difficult to get it out from there whereas for the person who gets it they just because it's impossible to put it back in where it comes from they just sew it into the front of their stomach so it's a much more straightforward but there was a happy ending with Shane he subsequently got a third transplant was it he did a lady from uh, a lady from uh, Glasgow and uh, his uh, his wife swears she had a taste for the drink because ever since he got it you know he's uh, He's taken to the drink with a passion. Do you drink yourself? There's a metaphysical aspect to to it. There's no doubt that it's not in any of the medical literature and the doctors will never explain it to you. But, I mean, it was absolutely life-changing for me. Not physically, not physically. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, now, that led to Opt for Life. Tell us about the campaign. It's been very successful in Northern Ireland and tell us about your lobbying in the South. Well... uh, (laughs) I dare say that had it been successful, the transplant, that that wouldn't have happened. But whenever it wasn't successful, then it, there was a yearning, like a, and also the chronic state of transplant in the North and South. Then, once I had looked at the figures and met, you know, the doctors and all, then it was clear that there was a big problem. But also, you see, because it's such a small country, and because it became such a co-celebra, you know, everyone was. I mean, I was being stopped by people wherever I went then. I mean, this was a whole new thing. You know, I was going and addressing Protestant schools in the north where you would get a standing ovation. And it was clear to me then, look, you could take advantage of this level of publicity. And it was almost like being a national scene. I mean, one stage I considered putting the children to work, you know, cutting out pieces <laughs> of my clothing so that could, they could be sold like Padre Bio relics. <laughs> But, but, no, so, but to explain the law change about opt-in and soft opt-out and right, well, it it's left to the deceased uh, people and so well, on. Well, the, the law change isn't that important, but what was absolutely critical was to involve the politicians. So we just went to, I went to Martin McGuinness and Peter Robinson. I knew Martin well anyway. Martin would have been well known to me since I was a child. And uh, for reasons that, 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 I, that I cannot disclose at this moment in time. But we... Uh, you know, I would have been sort of welcomed immediately into his circle. And so, and himself and Peter were very friendly. You know, Peter, like everyone else, had come under his spell. And uh, I must say, I, I always, and no, still I do have I want to talk a, to you about Marmagins, but just... But you, so what happened very quickly Irish was... Irish minister here about changing the law, whereby it's automatic almost that deceased people give their... No. No, tell no. us please. Basically, any good organ donation system works this way. Um... So first of all, you've got a good infrastructure. And in the North, we have an excellent infrastructure. So it's funded independently. Their money's ring-fenced. So the transplant system is light on its feet. They make their own decisions. And we've got a brilliant team in the Belfast City Hospital. They're a very small country, like a million and a half people. But nonetheless, they're very light on their feet. And so we've got a situation where we had a brilliant infrastructure. What we didn't have was any awareness. We had fear about transplant. We had chronically low figures um, politicians, did, when I went to Mark McGuinness and Peter Robinson, for example, they didn't know anything about how organ donation worked. They didn't know what the consent laws were. So 
what we did was we basically got Stormont to agree to do it, to have an organ donation act. And like there was actually nothing to it at all. It did nothing but state the obvious. But what it did was it got all the politicians involved. And so, you know, you ended up with a situation where all the politicians had a photograph outside Stormont. Everyone was conversant with the issues then. We passed an organ donation bill that didn't say anything more than what had already been said. In fact, it was only dealing with publicity. Uh, the key is to get the message out that you must speak to your loved ones so that it's clear what your wishes are. That's the key. There's no, can, there the can't south. be automatic donation. And in the south, what happened? So in the, north, in, in, the north, in, in the north, in the space of three years, for example, we've become the world's number one living donor country. So we were at the bottom of the league tables in Europe. We're now the world's number one living donor country. So up for life's on the jerseys of a lot of... Uh, you see, you've seen Slack Neil, for example, in the All-Ireland Club final. Every team in Slack Neil wears up for life. Every team in St. Bridget's. Where there are over 200 clubs wearing up for life. So we go, we give a talk in the club. And then we find within a few months, someone rings us to say, look, you know, my sister needed a kidney and I gave her a kidney or my brother or my wife... And it is spread through the sporting world, which is the best way to spread anything. And um, and because we've got the infrastructure, so for example, we've got four kidney transplant surgeons in a country for and, and a fifth part time in a country of one point five million people. In the south, you've got four for a country three times the size. So the big problem in the south is there's no infrastructure. So we've got a perfect storm in the north now. Publicity, awareness. The campaign simply is. Have you had the conversation? Speak to your loved ones. And what it has done is it demythologizes it. People aren't afraid of it anymore. And they see dead men and women walking in the community. And it's brilliant. And it's life-affirming and all of that. The problem in the South is infrastructure. They won't pay for the surgeons. Um, they're, they're cutting off their nose despite their face. There's too much political interference. And Jim Egan at the transplant office, which was only set up once we... But, you know, it, it, that came about as a result of the campaign in the South. So there's tremendous goodwill from the politicians here, but the problem is infrastructure. And uh, My guest this morning is Joe Brawley, uh, the, one of the most con- controversial pundits in the country. Of course, a columnist, uh, formerly with the Derry Journal, uh, with the IMOS, uh, Mail on Sunday, and now with the Sunday Independent. All the texts are about Gooch. We will come to that later. But let's, you, you alluded to Martin McGuinness there. And... Uh, you know, I get copious research. Uh, your parents, uh, Francie and uh, Anne um, Brawley, were Sinn Féin councillors, public representatives. Mm. Uh, I, I, in terms of Martin McGuinness, and I read your piece on him, and it was very moving. Would your family and would you be a Shinner? Oh, I'm not. I'm apolitical. I don't, um, I don't, um, you know... I've never voted for Sinn Féin or anything like that. I mean, my uh, early life was obviously immersed in the troubles. I mean, my father was a very high-profile attorney, you know, a person of interest to the, the, the sort of the British security forces. You know, the house would have regularly been ransacked. You know. When I was seven, the, the army poisoned our Labrador, which used to go wild if they came to the gates. You know, one of the neighbours saw them coming in. And uh, there was a a very close interest, and then you see when the when the troubles were going full swing, and then we had hunger strikers in the town. We had two hunger strikers in a small town, which was a disaster in many ways because it was so unfortunate. Because the hunger strike was a lottery; boys put their names into a hat, 
and uh, so you were drawn out at random then. So for us to have two, you know, was a huge amount of suffering in the town. So why are you then, political? Well, I'm apolitical because, you know, I uh, I just felt that in the end, you know, the impersonal taking of human life for any cause, you know, is it's just too too far. It's too far a step for me, and so I've always been, you know, the sanctity of human life is a key thing for me deep down, you know, and um, and I've Jeremy. always been, I've always been instinctively altruistic like I would never um, you know I, I can't think of anything that I wouldn't do for someone if and you know maybe in a way it's Were a, your parents it's a, it's, disappointed it's, it's that toning, you took that view? It's a toning for sins of the past maybe you know or but you know I would uh, I can't think of anything that I wouldn't do you know I mean if I saw someone lying in the street I would you know, I'd be, out of, I'd be parents, out of the car immediately. Were, were your parents disappointed? No, 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 they didn't. They respected like, It was you. never talked about in our house politics. Okay. It was never mentioned, you know. I mean, it was a secret thing and it wasn't ever discussed, you know. I went away from home when I was 11. You know, I went to St. Pat's Armagh boarding school and then I went straight on to Trinity. So, you know, but it was never, ever discussed. And uh, so, like, whereas I would, I have great time and like anyone else who's, being in Martin McGuinness's company, you know, I mean, Martin can charm the birds out mm. of the trees. And, and he's genuine of, and he's a heavyweight. And you also and spoke about not only his charisma, but his emotional intelligence, you, you, yeah. that he was good at working the room. Well, he went into the Department of Education, which was notoriously bigoted whenever he became, the, he was the first education minister whenever Stormont, the new Stormont was formed and there was a new dispensation. And people said, like, this is going to be a disaster. You know, an ex-commander of the IRA got it to say, he was making the tea for them. He was making the tea. That's Martin, you know. And he wouldn't be but doing was, that with was any... Was Martin sectarian? No, very humble. Wouldn't be a sectarian born in his body. Very fond of... of, of but of, but he had a legacy Very fond of Paisley, you know. What do you see? There's see, two halves uh, to his life. Is that uh, how you explain it? Because the person doesn't change. I, I, just, I just think, you know, some people have a personality that... Uh, that makes you overlook murder? Not that makes you overlook murder, because that's a part of what you are then. And human beings are capable of anything. I mean, I'm a defense barrister, and I see it on a daily basis. Good people are capable of anything. Capable of the most extraordinary things under the right circumstances. You know, the man who dearly loves his wife and strangles her. All of a sudden, you know. Um, well, a you know, campaign of war is slightly different are, to yeah, a but, sort of act of passion. But, but, you, but you have to understand then at that stage that the feeling was of war. I mean, I can remember going into Derry City with my father, you know, and he's going to meet people in there. And, uh, you know, the riots were going full swing on a Saturday. like, And in Derry City, because you see, there's also a, 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 a people treat it in a humorous way as well, because that's a way to deal with it, I think. But also people are complex, but they used to call the riots in Derry on a Saturday, the daytime riots, the matinee. Egan down to the matinee. <laughs> and so it was just, you know, and they were the Brits and they came and they were attacked, you know, and boys were behind free. I'll tell you a story which sort of sums it up in a way. Paddy McDermott, the solicitor, great fella, you know, and um, one of the sort of most sort of renowned solicitors in the North, you know, integrity, all of that, you know, great fun as well, you know, not precious or anything. And a real Derry City man. And Paddy's father was a doctor and um, anyway... The, what was happening in Derry City was guns had been sent up from Belfast at the start of the Troubles, but they weren't hitting anybody. So nobody had 
They hadn't been trained. So Martin Meehan, at that stage, who was like a young Che Guevara in Belfast, Martin Meehan was dispatched, you know, the sort of the IRA's top assassin, to train the Derry City Boys. And the training was very openly done, sort of where Free Derry Wall is. Training them to kill? Well, training them how to shoot straight. Yeah, it was a main So kill. in any event, yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm not, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I dare say your yeah, listeners sure. aren't children. Like. Yeah. So anyway, the, uh, Martin was there, and this was like the arrival of, of, of sort of Rudolph Valentino, you know, this was Tom Cruise arriving in Derry City, you see. And Paddy McDermott remembers as a child, you know, his mother... He was in the primary school close by the the where Martin was stationed, and you know Martin his guns would have been stacked up, you know in a snook you know, like turf, because it was a no go area for the Brits. And anyway, he remembers his mother saying to him, you know, giving him an autograph book and saying, "Don't you come home this evening without Martin Meehan's autograph," and queuing. And Martin would be saying, you know, who will make this out to son? Oh, what's what's your name? So good, you're saying, who will make this out to Mrs. McDermott? You know. Uh, Best wishes, <laughs> Martin May. And so that was the other side of it because there was great support for the the reason the provos were able to flourish because we supported them. They could go into any home. They could be, you know, the, 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 the sort of the nationalist just, Republican just people that, supported as them. As a guy who was born, was it 67? Uh, 69. 69. Um, you're a little bit younger than I thought. Um, John Hume? Would he be as remembered as fondly, a dairyman, as a Hume Adams process? Would he get the same footnote in history as Martin? I think so. You know, the thing about Hume is this. People always said about Hume, oh, he was boring. But, you know, he he was steadfast throughout. You know, whatever you might think of John Hume, he was steadfast throughout. You know, I can remember him coming, to, he came to public meetings in Dungiven when it was uh, the place had just gone up. Everybody was getting involved. You know, everybody was involved in some way or other. And I can remember John Hume coming in a very hostile meeting where he was arguing for peace. This is, you know, mid-70s, arguing for peace. People were shouting at him, you know, from the floor. But he stood his ground, you know, and he always stood his ground. And in the end, of course, Hume sacrificed himself. He sacrificed the SDLP because it was political suicide to do what he did then. He brought Sinn Féin in from the cold. Uh, he sacrificed himself. You know, and they supplanted the SDLP. Well, well, Sinn Féin brought, right. brought the glamour. SDLP okay, were okay, seen as a party of old men. forward. You, you live in Belfast now? I do. And you have young kids. What age are your kids? The oldest boy is nearly 17. Okay. Let's talk about modern day Northern Ireland because I'm fascinated in terms of Nordies. Now, I'm pretty kind of let them at it. You know, like the Kinnahan and the Hutches let them at it and kind of like... Are we taxpayers going to fork it out of the Brits say we've had enough of Brexit, we've had enough of this in terms of this? So, I, I, I have a view about Nordies. What, T- tell me. Are uh, you talking about? Uh, what, what, what I'm talking does, does that make any sense? All right. Well, I think down south it might. The question I'm putting to you. about Nordies. <laughs> Sweet the role was whinging. The role was whinging and the role was, was sectarian. It, was it for this, the wild goose flapped the wing <laughs> on every tie? Is sectarianism part of modern day Northern Ireland life? No, it's there's no doubt it's it's retreating. Now you'll go to some counties like Fermanagh, for example, where it's absolutely entrenched, and where you'd have, you know, for example, Protestant land will never be sold into Catholic hands, you know, and there are associations that have been formed to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so I can understand Arlene Foster because that's the situation that she comes from. I can never see Arlene Foster stepping down, and I would say it's most likely that we're going to have a period of direct rule in the north now. 
And so there's no doubt that there is that sort of Tom Elliott thing, you know, I'll never attend a GAA match or a gay parade, you know, that sort of stuff, that fundamentalist nonsense. No change and, there. No, not, there is a rump. But what you do see, for example, let's look at my children. They wouldn't know anything about the troubles, about sectarianism, um, Protestant, Catholic, makes no difference to them. Middle class Belfast, of course, which is a different thing. And, you know, increasingly you've got Gaelic football lads going to, I mean, so for example, in the St. Bridge, it's under 16s. A few years ago, we had five lads on the Methody Firsts who were going on to play in the school's cup final. Something you would never have seen 20 years ago. So that all the while these things are breaking down and you see the symbols of this all the time. So, so a very good example is somebody like Ian Paisley Jr. or Kyle. Who, Ian Paisley Jr. has covered himself in glory over the last few years with his non-sectarian message, you know, and his, his trenchant attacks on sectarianism in that rump that's in the DUP. And uh, you'd never have seen that 25 years ago, you know, when his dad was basically advocating But that's the Pronti side of it. The, let's talk about the nationalist and the Catholic side Aye. of it. And the GAA. Yeah. And you spoke about Slocknail and so on. Yeah. Is is it part of the GAA nationalist culture that there is an... Because an, you've spoken about, you know, you derided the president, the incumbent yeah. president, about getting rid of the trike or getting rid of the national anthem and that. Like, yeah, but respect's a mutual thing. I mean, you don't, you don't serve... We don't... I mean, we wouldn't say, for example, that as I call it, you know, the, the, the famous statue of Edward Carson giving the Fenians the bird outside Stormont. So your we tribalism don't, we don't call is okay. For that. Your we tribalism we, is no, okay. No, 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 we don't call for that to be knocked down. I don't call for that to be knocked down. But, I mean, respect is just a mutual thing. And, I mean, Protestant friends of mine would agree entirely with my position, which is that why should Linfield, you know, or why should Northern Ireland not... Why should Linfield, for example, not play the, the God Save but, the Queen? Why should my, we my not respect is, it? Has there been a shift in sectarianism on the national side, uh, you know, or is it just a rump or what? Just no, do think, a mirror image of what no, you explained uh, about the bodies. I think that, I think that um, whereas, you know, in ghetto areas, there'll be sectarianism, but it's more ghettoism than, than, than that. I think that... It's deprivation. I, I think that, I think that in general, like, I'll give you an example. So about six weeks ago, I went up to meet a group of retired, very old loyalist paramilitaries, you know, some of whom were lampooned in the sort of sitcom in the North, Give My Head Peace, the one that David McSavage savaged. But uh, so Andy Terry was there and Andy Terry was the sort of commander of loyalism at its most bloodiest phase. And he's 76 years of age now. And... Um, He's sitting there with retired Republican paramilitaries, you know, and uh, we had a most pleasant hour together talking about how things have changed, you know, and he was talking about after we started the campaign in the North, when he was 72 years of age, this man of unbelievable bloodshed, you know, and slaughter of just pure sectarian slaughter, he gave a kidney to his wife and... Uh, you know, and if you met Andy Torino, you would never believe that he had done what he did, you know, because he's not a monster. He's not, absolutely not. And it illustrates the point I'm making about what people are capable of, but it illustrates also that those people in the heartland of loyalism have entirely changed their approach. So the you future, know. the future, the future. I, things post- are going very well. They okay. couldn't be going okay. any better. If, if I, I can't remember the last time there was a sectarian assault 
It used to be if okay. something like that came before the courts, because I'm in Belfast, so yeah. I see it, and we we hear about it, and if anything like that happens, you know, there's they, they come down on them okay. like a ton of bricks. I can't remember the last time anything like that happened. Time is against us. What do you think is the future of Northern Ireland post-Brexit? If I was to say to you that the Tories are quite yeah. happy to have England rule, it, yeah. you know, it's easy for them to get a majority. Yeah. 2% of the UK population is Northern Ireland. It yeah. costs them £10 billion a year. Could you end up orphanless? Well, only like orphans in Northern Ireland. Only a very rich prime minister would have, you know, been involved in such a reckless gamble as breakfast. You know, or Brexit because it doesn't matter to him, and you can see already. You know, he makes a hundred thousand pounds a speech, and you know that's that's just the way things are. I'm not sure that Brexit will actually occur. I have to say, I think there are so many complications. But the particular problems and for Northern Ireland: no farmers' grants, yeah, the border issues, thing. and so on. Are you yeah. are you optimistic of the future for Northern Ireland? It's impossible to know. You know, human human beings always find a way, one way or the other. Do you, you think know, there'll be a United Ireland in your lifetime? I would say it's moving that direction because it's really in the end. It's not. I'm. I'm. You know, I don't have any nationalist outlook. I don't have any. I don't have any nationalist outlook in that way. But, um, you know, I have the same view of free staters as you have of Nordies. But I think it's probably inevitable okay. in the next 30 years. People will shoot me for not asking the following question. Were you not too hard on Gooch? In what way? Call him a choker. Well, that was about one match against Cross McLean. Ah, well, you double down on it a bit today now in today's Sunday I know, but I, I think it's all entirely fair. You know, what, You're what, saying he wasn't a leader at 22? I'll tell, I'll tell you what in I like. In a match against Toronto? I'll tell you what I like. It's very harsh. I'll tell you. Well, he wasn't a leader in 2003, 2005, 2008, 2010. I mean, don't, I mean like my, I just think critical thinking has gone from society. You know, the column I wrote, I sort of likened what is the eulogising this week to the death of Lady Diana, where it became compulsory to say he was the greatest player that ever lived. And he wasn't the greatest player that ever lived. What he was, was for me, the most skillful player I ever saw. But that's, that's it's another step to say that X is the greatest player that, that, that has played the game, because he isn't. Because he what ever, he did was, and uh, well, well, let me go through it briefly. No, I'd move no, one, time. no one had such a bewildering array of skills but the other part of being a great fo- footballer or a great sportsman is to lead your team in adversity. So, for example, the easy All-Irelands, where they played terrified Mayo and Cork teams, that was his four All-Irelands, Mayo and Cork, hapless teams who collapsed very quickly, where there was comedy of errors, where I mean, Kerry were just feasting on them. But the real tests, when it was really put to them, and now you're in the white heat of battle, Tyrone 2003 disappeared, Tyrone 2005 Peter Canavan illustrated that day the same level of skills as Gooch, but what a battler led them home, fighting for everything, turning games around in adversity. 2008, again, they play Tyrone, again, they feel he's, he feels, and then the rest gets serious. So from 2009 onwards, he didn't win another All-Ireland, and it was Dublin, Donegal, and in the white heat of battle, Apart from a first half in 2013 against the Dubs, whenever he was put up against Jerry Brennan, who simply was too ponderous to be able to deal with him. But as soon as that was remedied in the second half and Keanu O'Sullivan went on him, that was it. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that because they're just a matter of fact. Okay. He wasn't that type of person you've made that, that would lead, lead a team there. in adversity. Finally, and in a word, I'm but a great to, player and I'm, most enjoyable I'm player to watch. I'm Croker today, five in a row for Dublin. Um, big match. Who do you think will win? The dubs are the perfect storm. Look, it's it's not that somebody can't be beaten on a given day, 
but for four years they've been playing attacking football and that's their template. So it's in their DNA and you saw against Monaghan last week, one of the most fearsome defensive teams in the country, how the Dubs got reeled off 2-5 in the last 10 minutes when Dubs they were to in win danger. by 5 well, it's a perfect storm. You know, okay. the, the athleticism on top of everything Final else makes question. them overwhelming. Final question. Joe Brawley for president, GAA or the Republic of Ireland on your agenda ever? I'm going to turn the RS into a homeless hostel. As president? And live there with them. And maybe about four or five particular causes that I'm working on at the moment. You're going to stand for president? Well, I haven't said that. But you might. Well, somebody needs to do something. Uh, like Paddy Perko on 66 to 1 Joe Brawley should have if you quit well I mean come on you're not on it already it's the easiest money you'll ever make zero cost campaign volunteers only Joe Brawley thank you for being my guest on Yates and Sunday I wish you well with the Sunday game whatever about the presidency and dairy football thank you